Hi, I'm Jim Raffle. Welcome to this episode of the Dye Subcast, simply the best place to get information about dye sublimation printing. We talk with equipment manufacturers, consumables manufacturers, dye sublimation producers, and we also share our own experiences from running a dye sublimation business. It doesn't matter if you're new to dye sublimation or a seasoned professional with decades of experience. We're certain there is something here for you. Let's get this episode started. I'm going to turn it over to Shelby. I'm Shelby Sapusik, and thank you, Jim. Uh, today, we're going to be talking with Michael Maxwell, who's the Senior Manager of Corporate Strategic Development of Mamaki USA, and he is out of Atlanta. Um, Michael, we've known you for a long time, so I'm just going to turn it over to you and let you tell them your background. Yeah, awesome. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate the uh, opportunity to speak to you all. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's been a fun run for us here at Mamaki. Uh, we've got a lot of uh, different things to talk about, I think, today. But uh, my background actually started in screen printing. Uh, I grew up in a uh, family-owned screen printing uh, company, and I was exposed to printing early on. And uh, like most of us, uh, wasn't able to escape the uh, the excitement of the printing industry. Uh, Transferred over to the signage and graphics side, uh, worked for a distributor of Mamaki products uh, for quite some time, and then transitioned over to the Mamaki family. Uh, it's been 10 years now. It'll be 10 years in July, actually, uh, that I've been with Mamaki. So it's been a fun run. Uh, over the uh, past 10 years, I uh, have run a uh, region as a sales manager. Uh, I actually started off as a sales rep, moved into the manager role uh, over uh, the course of a few years, uh, transitioned over to more of the corporate side, worked uh, very closely with the marketing team, uh, very closely with some of the product launches. And then uh, in the most recent years have moved into a more strategic role, hence the name of the, uh, <laughs> the department, uh, to uh, be kind of a conduit between uh, all of our sales uh, regions, the marketing team, our operations team, and kind of work with our customer base and see what we can do to uh, make sure that the products are, you know, giving the customers exactly what they're looking for and are well-received in the market. So uh, that's a little bit of a background on my end. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Um, so I guess our first question is how long has Momaki been in the dye sublimation business? We've been in the dye sublimation business for a long time. So we were actually the world's first piezoelectric textile inkjet printer back in 1998. And we transitioned over into uh, dye sub uh, shortly after that. Uh, we had a product, the uh, JV4, that was one of our uh, first dye sublimation, uh, widely accepted dye sublimation uh, platforms. Uh, so we've been in the, in the dye sublimation space for uh, well over 20 years. Uh, and as a, uh, you know, a very well-versed uh, company in textile printing in general, uh, we've been in that space uh, for, for quite some time as well. So the, uh, the, the idea behind dye sublimation has been uh, very static in terms of the, the concept of how it works. But as far as the technology, it's come a long way in the past 20 plus years. And we're really excited about the, the lineup that we have uh, on our end. Uh, so dye sublimation is one of the things that's been a... Uh, really a staple item for us for a long time. Just out of curiosity, back in 1998, what were what kind of products were you doing in Daiso? Do you know? Yeah, so everything has been uh, piezoelectric for us. Uh, there were some uh, other products that were, uh, at the time, I believe, thermal uh, transfer. There was some solvent dye sub inks that were available at the time. Uh, we are... Uh, we are really trying to create a... Um, an expert platform with an easy to 
access uh, price point and features. We try to make things as easy as possible. So back in the day, uh, you know, the, the printers weren't much more elegant than a traditional desktop printer. Uh, they just were wider and supported uh, rolls of paper instead of sheeted goods. But now that we are uh, into, uh, you know, 2021, uh, the technology has grown so much. It's, uh, it's advanced a lot. So the concept of getting the ink out of a print head and onto a, a surface like your transfer paper is, has not changed much in that time. But the technology behind how that drop comes out and everything is significantly changed. So back then, you know, you were larger drops, uh, your DPI was much lower, your speeds were, uh, at the time, they were great, but compared to the, today's machines, they were very slow. So back then it was just a, you know, kind of a learning curve, but uh, that combined with all the other stuff that we do on all the other areas of our business uh, has helped really expand the dye sublimation space a lot. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, it's, I mean, even in the short time that I've been in this industry, uh, the technology just astounds me how it changes from year to year. Yeah, I think the the, the, the most uh, complimentary thing that's changed over the years that's gotten a lot better is the the transfer paper. Uh, there are a couple of uh, very well-known brands out there. Uh, we work with all of them, but the the compatibility of the ink chemistry and the transfer paper is a critical piece. And I, I think a lot of people, uh, at least early on, struggled with that. Uh, we still have customers that don't quite understand that sometimes the, uh, the less expensive paper is just fine, but sometimes you need to go to a more expensive paper because maybe the, uh, the coating might have a particular uh, you know, way of, of being uh, put down through the manufacturing process. It might be chemically compatible with the ink. Uh, might not be chemically compatible with the ink. There's a, a lot there. There's a lot less uh, paper that's not compatible with ink now than there has been years past, but it's definitely something that's uh, really helped grow the sublimation space is the fact that the paper manufacturers for the transfer process and the ink manufacturers like ourselves have worked very closely with each other to make sure that things work in unison because you know paper manufacturers don't typically make ink and Ink manufacturers don't typically make paper, so it's uh, it's really important to find uh, combinations of products and companies that work well with other industry peers, uh, so that the uh, the process is easy and the customer has the the experience they're looking for. It's interesting. Uh, paper and the quality of transfer paper has come up. I think this is three episodes, not in a row, but three of the last four or five where where paper has come up as a kind of significant topic. So. Um, I, I, I think I even called it a trend in the last episode. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it is interesting. We, we had uh, CEO of Beaver Paper on a few episodes ago, and, and, uh, and, and I learned a lot about paper. I, I thought I knew a fair amount about dye sublimation paper, and I realized how little I actually knew. So, and I, guess yeah, he, I guess he used to work with you guys. So. <laughs> we know him very well, yeah. And, uh, you know, the, just as complicated as it is to make a good inexpensive ink, it's equally, if not more complicated to make a good inexpensive paper. And then you have to worry about the coating that goes on it that's gonna receive the ink. So there's a couple of extra steps on the paper manufacturing sides that, that's very critical. And we've seen it time and time again, where a customer will buy one of our machines and we know what to expect with the equipment and they'll buy uh, some paper that they they found, uh, you know, and I'm not here to knock any, any brands or anything like that. So. Um, certainly don't take it that way, but there are some cheaper papers that are on the market that you can buy off the internet or uh, overseas if you want to buy, you know, a container load. 
and they just don't perform like a, a product that's gone through a good manufacturing process and that's made by a well-known brand. So the paper is a very critical piece. And, and if you take our printer and you put a cheap paper in there and the performance isn't well, you take the exact same printer without making any mechanical adjustments, nothing, and put a decent paper in there, all of a sudden your print quality is improved, your transferability is improved. There's a, there's a lot of things there that the paper takes care of that I think that most people overlook. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I'm going to turn this next question over to Shelby because I know you've got, I, I, I keep track of you guys on Instagram and I know, I know some of your team and I know that they, they create some really cool uh, design pieces that then they, that then get shared on Instagram, both your company account and their personal accounts. So um, Shelby's got the design background on, so I'm going to let her ask this question. Well, I, we just wanted to know if you could explain to our listeners the different applications your printers are typically used for, basically what kinds of, different products. Yeah. Dye sublimation in general is just such a versatile uh, technology. So first off, it's a water-based ink. So there's, there's a lot of, uh, you know, color range that's achievable there. Uh, it works through a transfer process. So for the, your listeners that follow you guys, I'm sure they're very well versed on how that works, but it opens you up to a wide variety of different applications. So uh, there's a lot more substrates that can be transferred to nowadays than there has been in years past. Uh, our application team is always getting new ideas or always trying new things. Uh, one of my favorite applications that we've just uh, showcased recently was a uh, coffee mug transfer. So, you know, coffee mugs are well known in the dye sub space, uh, but the coffee mug transfer is just one part of it. There's also the delivery of the good in some sort of a packaging, because if you want to sell it even if you're selling it off of Amazon and not in a traditional retail space, you have to have it in a box or something like that. And uh, we actually had the uh, the coffee mug printed. And then we also did a transfer onto the packaging that would uh, receive the ink as well. And it allowed us to create the exact same color range. It allowed us to repeat the pattern into the packaging part of it. Uh, it really created a, a, a very unique uh, deliverable that, is, is something that customers would resonate with when they see it on the shelf, or even if they saw it on an Amazon picture, they'd say, oh, wow, look, look at that. Because the image is the same on the package as it is on the coffee mug. The color range is obviously the same. The detail is the same. So it, it, it almost looks like they, they should always be together, even though you know, you're gonna take the coffee mug out and probably throw the package away. Uh, so those are some interesting things. Uh, of course, the, the old tried and true stuff like the mouse pads and, and some of the other things. Uh, one of the trends that we've seen recently, though, is a lot of uh, coastal print. So people that live close to a body of water like the ocean, uh, you know, instead of producing a, uh, a canvas print, for example, a lot of people are moving over into uh, solid substrates like uh, solid metals and things like that, that don't uh, corrode or rust easy, uh, like aluminum. Uh, there's a bunch of different brands out there uh, that have that, you know, that type of material and the transferability, you get that high vibrancy, like you would get off an oil painting or, a, you know, a very nice, uh, you know, watercolor uh, job and, and they look fantastic and you put it in the frame. And if, if you, unless you're standing up on it, a lot of times you won't even realize that it's a, uh, you know, it's not a traditional canvas print. So we see a lot of that. And of course the display graphics stuff, even though the uh, trade show industry has taken a, a significant impact over the uh, the past year and a half because of COVID, uh, we do still see a lot of display graphics, specifically in high traffic areas like airports, uh, train stations. Uh, the dye sub gives you the ability to produce onto fabric, which can have a, uh, you know, 
uh, a silicone uh, bead put on it, which allows the customers to, to quickly load them into an SEG frame. And it gives some really great return. You can change those out uh, more often because you don't have to bring in a, like a boom truck or anything like that. You can get on a ladder and put the stuff on pretty easily. So we see a lot of uh, different applications there. Uh, and then, you know, if you want to look at uh, just traditional sportswear and apparel, those are always very, very popular. We see a lot of different things. Uh, in fact, uh, one of our applications members did some shorts some bike shorts uh, and we used some of our different uh, higher, uh, you know, colored inks like our neon uh, fluorescent inks, if you will. So, so those are those are some great applications that we see a lot of. I'm, if it's the application specialist I'm thinking about, I I believe that she's also done things like purses and backpacks. And as I understand it, that stuff's all kind of part of your. I, I don't know if you still use this marketing phrase, but your digital smart factory. I, I, are you still kind of using that as a promotional? I don't, I don't like promotional as a, uh, as a marketing message. Yeah. The micro factory approach was uh, something that we started to promote. Uh, gosh, it's been about six years now. Uh, it's still definitely part of our uh, general verbatim. Uh, it's the concept is to show someone that the, the printer is not the only piece of the process, but the process doesn't have to be overly complicated if all of the components are designed to flow into each other. So the microfactory concept gives us the ability to do exactly what you said, things like tote bags, uh, and we can start from raw roll goods, uh, transfer those, uh, convert them down on some sort of a cutting device, uh, and then we can bring them over to a sewing device. Uh, even, even the uh, display graphic stuff, if you're doing an SEG frame, there's a lot of uh, SEG uh, sewing devices out there that you can do, uh, you know, a hand manual type of approach. And there's some that are automatic where you just load the, you know, the silicone into the machine, you tap in the fabric, you hit go, and it runs the, the whole line for you. So there's a lot of different things there in the microfactory uh, approach that's great. And you're right. I mean, tote bags, all those different things. Uh, the interesting thing about that is we've seen a, a, a lot more customers that are marrying different technologies. So for example, uh, t-shirt transfer decal material that would traditionally be done on like a solvent printer. Uh, we've seen a lot of customers that are doing like the dye sub base for the fabric, and then they're transferring the decal to give it a different look. So it has that, that finished polished look that you would get from the dye sub transfer. And then it has that decal on it, which has a, a, a slightly different look and feel to it. So now you've got completely different ink chemistries that are going on to the same object that give a new dimensional feel to that and, and kind of some different value to it for the customers. So very interesting stuff. Very. And speaking of inks, you mentioned earlier, and we know this too, that uh, Mamaki is a manufacturer of your own ink. And so we were curious, what kind of advantages does that offer your customers? Well, first and foremost, from our end, uh, the, the manufacturing process allows us to come to market more efficiently. Uh, so, uh, you know, 20 plus years ago, we were not in the ink business. Uh, we were at the mercy of other uh, chemical providers to produce those inks. Uh, they have their own processes. They have their own quality control uh, expectations. Uh, when, you, when you put it in the machine, the functionality of the ink with the architecture has to work right. Uh, I know we've got a lot of customers out there and we, we get a lot of feedback uh, from not only, you know, the, the different inks that are out there, but the different architectures, because we're not the only printer manufacturer out there. And sometimes the ink uh, doesn't flow really well. It clogs up. Uh, sometimes the ink uh, requires, you know, a lot more coercing to get it through the print head. Sometimes it's 
too thin and it runs through the printhead too fast and it ends up just wasting ink. So you have to have a nice balance there with the, the printer architecture, the, the plumbing, the pumps that you're going to use, the printhead itself, uh, the cleaning mechanisms you're going to design, because the idea is to put more ink onto the surface that you're going to be using with a finished good, as opposed to putting it into uh, a waste ink bottle. So by moving into the ink manufacturing uh, some time ago, uh, we recognize that we can control all those different aspects. And what that provides for our customers is it gives our customers that that peace of mind that when they buy a complete solution from Amaki, the machine's going to perform the way it's intended to. Uh, the cleaning functions are going to perform properly. You're going to have more uptime. You're not going to be running around the machine trying to figure out why you've got, uh, you know, too much saturation or not enough, maybe you got ink dropout. So it gives us the, uh, the ability to do that. Plus it gives us a lot of tighter control over the, uh, the ability of us to create a drop. And that's something that I think a lot of people don't really recognize how much engineering goes behind getting a drop of liquid to fall onto a material in a very symmetrical shape because dot gain is, is all about the symmetry of that, that drop that comes out. And when you're dealing with a variable dot uh, architecture, like all of our products are, you have three different drop sizes you can produce. And you're doing that in, in a fractions of a second, milliseconds. And your printhead gap is typically pretty thin as well. So dice up a little higher just because uh, the, the way that the, the technology works, but you're usually running a print head gap somewhere between three millimeters and five millimeters on the high end. And that's, that's a, not a lot of space. So to get that drop to come out of the print head exactly when you need it to come out so that it lands exactly where you need it on the material. And then it has to be able to drop. It has to be able to spread properly so that it doesn't end up becoming like a eye drop shape or you know, some sort of a weird uh, shape so that you're, images come out more crisp. There's all these different things that come into play. So by manufacturing the ink on our end, we have tighter control over all those processes. So when we design a new product, our time to market shrunk down from five to seven years back in the nineties to about one and a half to three years uh, for a new product. So we can quickly test everything, design the product. We know the chemistry is going to work really well. And we can also make adjustments on the fly to the chemistry. So if you look at our portfolio of ink, we've got a large portfolio of ink and each one of the inks is specifically uh, designed to work with a particular architecture. So they're matched components. And the great thing about that is that when you're buying the machine, you know, you're going to get the same color range, whether you're buying the low end product or the high end product from our portfolio. But you also know that when you run that machine, it's going to run consistently and you're you know, your guesswork's going to be taken out and it doesn't matter how quickly we come to market with it. We can make those adjustments even, even after the, the, the product's been designed. And sometimes that happens. Sometimes you need to make adjustments because different, uh, you know, countries have different, you know, uh, environmental characteristics, maybe higher humidity, lower humidity, and those all play a role in it as well. But that gives us a lot more uh, control over that whole process and, and make sure that our customers are happy. That's an excellent explanation. Thank you. Because I don't think many um, people who deal with printers, uh, who just are operators of them uh, for their own business or whatever, actually understand how many variables go into an ink system. You know, you, you were talking about the print head height, and then there's also the speed of the media feed. And then as you were saying, you know, the how the ink 
itself reacts to humidity. There's just so many factors. And I can see how being an ink manufacturer that for your own equipment would get rid of some of those uh, trouble, some variables. Yeah, we get that question a lot. Uh, you know, some of our products have uh, similar print uh, engines in them. Some of them have completely different print engines in them. And, and the reason being is because it's based on the expectation, right? So some of our machines, the, the customer knows that uh, they're going to produce mouse pads and coffee mugs and, you know, they're only going to run it so many hours a day. But then when we move into the, the mid and the high range production environments, you got to be able to move that, that ink out of that print head very quickly. And we can make the printer move fast, moving steel left and right and moving material through is not really a, a difficult process. Moving it through consistently and accurately is difficult, making sure that you have those consistencies. But the thing that I think most people don't realize is that when you're dealing with a printer nowadays, the, the drop sizes used to be somewhere in the, the 30 picoliter range, which is very small, but now we're down to four picoliters. That's smaller than the circumference of a human hair. And right. you've, got to, you've got to get that drop in a very precise location. And you're putting hundreds of drops, sometimes thousands within a square inch that all have to land precisely where they need to be so that that color represents correctly, the image represents correctly. There's a lot of moving variables there. And you're right, uh, environmental and in variables tend to be some of the things that are uh, the most complicated because somebody might have their printer near a, a roll-up door and the temperature changes throughout the day and the humidity level changes throughout the day. It's a, it's water-based ink. So it, uh, it, it could dry out a little bit or it could get too wet. Uh, the paper reacts differently in those environments, right? The, the, the ability of that ink to stick to the paper, the transferability, there's all these different things that come into play. Uh, but a closed system like ours, where we're controlling most of the variables on the upfront side, that minimizes the amount of things you have to think about on the back end side. Doesn't get rid of them all, but it certainly makes things a lot easier. It's funny that you mentioned the roll-up door scenario. We, you know, we do color management, of course, and uh, we did run into a situation like that with a client. We were there for a week, and halfway through the week, we're profiling, you know, four or five machines, and then all of a sudden, they get this huge UV flatbed delivered. So they open up this great big warehouse door where they keep their printing equipment, and guess what happened to our profiling? Yeah, right. <laughs> You know, the environment just went haywire and, you know, it was almost like we had to start over from scratch. Yeah. And that's, that's another thing I think uh, people don't recognize is also very critical. So a lot of people, um, there's a lot of different inks out there. And again, I'm not here to, to knock any particular, uh, you know, company for their, their efforts. Uh, from, from our perspective, though, a, a sealed system in, in a lot of cases is a, a, a better way, especially with the smaller machines that aren't going to be run as often. Uh, there are things that can happen in the ink. It is water-based. Sometimes they can grow microbes in them. You can get clogging in the lines because you get some sort of a, uh, even ink can get sick and get a bacteria or mold or fungus or anything like that. So there's different things to consider there. So when we design a machine, we think about those those pieces as well. If if the system's going to be a pour in ink system, like a, you know, a large system that's going to require uh, customers to pour the ink out of uh, an ink bottle into a, a reservoir. We usually have filtration built into the machine that helps filter it. And all of those things also have to be exactly tuned to the ink because if your microns that you're allowing to flow through the filters, for example, exceed or don't work very well with the chemistry of the ink, the viscosity or, or whatever, you might pull pigment out. Uh, you could prevent the printer from performing well. You could create your own clogging issues. You could also cause it to backfill and 
yeah, there's a lot of different things that can go wrong. So uh, it's a little bit nerdy on my end. You know, I spent a lot of time with these uh, devices, but the ink is a, a really, really critical piece. And, and it's it's something that I, I think customers kind of take for granted. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. I don't think we've dove into the ink system quite as deep before in the podcast. So I, I like what you had to say there. I'm going to switch topics a little bit because, Michael, we have something in common in our backgrounds, and that is that we each have a design background. And when it comes to the design aspect of DICE, I was curious about your recommendations because uh, you probably know that uh, we pivoted a little bit. I hate that word, but got to use it sometimes. Uh, early last year, and we started doing some DICE up on our own. We started doing some masks and gaiters that went over into socks and things. And I've, I've been doing the designs for all these products. And, you know, it's hard. I mean, come, trying to come up with things, trying to guess what people are going to buy in my little Etsy store. And, you know, some people have told me to keep the designs as simple as possible. But I've definitely seen a lot, even before this, I've seen a lot of intricate examples out there. And so I was curious if you have any recommendations for the design aspect. And what is Mamaki's approach to dice sub design? Yeah, so dice sub design, first off, I have uh, a a fantastic set of coworkers that spend a lot of time. Uh, we've got a, a really great, I can't speak highly enough about them, uh, team of, of applications people on, on the, uh, on the team here. And they, they spend a lot of time paying attention to that. Design's an interesting subject. Uh, design is very subjective. Uh, you know, design that I like, you may not vice versa. Uh, what we found though, is that the, the traditional platforms are where most of the designers spend their time. Uh, you know, Adobe, uh, there are some Corel users out there that spend some time uh, designing, although I see a lot more of that on the screen printing side of the, the business. Uh, Adobe's probably one of the, the more uh, popular ones. Uh, the interesting thing about the design piece though is, 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 it a, is it gonna be like a team logo or is it gonna be a repeat pattern? Because those are different design approaches. Uh, repeat patterns are, I would, from my experience, are a lot more difficult because you have to make sure that there's no spacing in there. You have to make sure everything matches up so that you have that consistency. And then, you know, how big do you do it? Uh, you can get into a lot of really complex layering and, and all kinds of different things with it. But I think the simple approach tends to always be the the, the tried and true, you know, kind of the keep it simple. Uh, don't, don't overcomplicate the design. Uh, vector graphics definitely are the the go-to uh, from from what I see. There there aren't as many uh, flattened images or traditional photography that we see on the die sub side, with the exception of uh, some of the display graphics stuff that I mentioned earlier or the uh, aluminum. But most of it's vectored artwork. Uh, vectored artworks become very accessible. Uh, there's tablet applications now. There's pencils that are available, styluses that are available for a lot of these devices. Some people can design stuff on their phone, but uh, to make a good pattern, you you kind of have to know where the colors are going to go and you have to know what the uh, the in, in trends are. And uh, I can say that since I've spent a little bit more time on the, uh, the strategic side here, not as much time with the design in the past few years, I've probably fallen a little bit out of touch with that myself. But uh, there's, there's cycles to everything, uh, things coming out of New York or Los Angeles, especially if you're looking at the, uh, you know, the, the designers that are coming into like fashion week and things like that, you can kind of get an idea of where the trends are and definitely where the colors are. And, uh, the design software nowadays is, is so accessible and easy to use. Uh, you can get lost in the sea of functions. Uh, so I guess my recommendation is, you know, definitely pay attention to what, the designers are doing in 
the, the real high profile designers, I should say, are doing, and then pay attention to the colors that are kind of trending. Uh, but that trending, that word bears some meaning now too, because there's more information available now than ever. And you could probably pick up what's going to be the next big thing just from going online and paying attention to your Instagram or your Facebook account uh, nowadays. But that, I think that the, uh, I guess back to your question, the the simple approach uh, from a design perspective, uh, definitely using the tools that are uh, well-known and available. Uh, most of the rips that are out there, Rasterlinks, our rip that comes with our printer, they support PDFs, they support EPS files, they support all kinds of different things. So there's not really a wrong approach to how you want to build it out. Uh, it just really comes down to what works for you and, and what's going to get your customers excited about it. Yeah, I've been using mostly vector graphics. And now that you've mentioned this, I think, Jim, I might need some new toys to like start drawing my own vector graphics. <laughs> Great. <laughs> <laughs> Is that, was that before or after your uh, curved monitor? Oh, I'm not sure. <laughs> we'll have to talk. <laughs> well, it's interesting you bring that up, Jim, because remember, uh, you know, 15 years ago when everybody was making the transition to digital televisions, you know, CRT monitors were, oh, we got to get rid of those. We got to get flat screens. Now everybody's going back to curved glass again. Yeah, it's curved the other way. <laughs> right. Well, true, true. <laughs> no, we, we were on site with a client who had one of those and Shelby just, I think, I think for the most part fell in love with it because it was, I, I get it. I mean, it's like two monitors next to each other, but they just flow one right into the other. And um, we'll probably get her one at some point in the future. So it currently sold out. So. It's, it's on recording now. That's going to get cut. <laughs> so, so this is kind of the point in the show where we, we ask everybody the same two questions. Um, and I think you kind of covered this too, but I'm gonna I'm gonna give you one more shot at it. What interesting trends do you see in dye sublimation? Um, and actually, you could even say because you've got a little bit of experience with inkjet printers, there um, you can you can cross over from dye sub if you see something you think our listeners should hear about. I think the biggest trends, and I'll stick to the textile uh, world because there's there's so many different things we can talk about on solvent, UV curable, and even 3D. Uh, but on the textile side. I think the most important thing is that dye sublimation, while it is probably the most popular uh, textile producing uh, workflow, there's a lot of different fabrics out there and polyester goods uh, are very versatile. They've certainly come a long way in my lifetime uh, and, and people are very you know satisfied with the look and feel of polyester goods. But the, uh, the ability to print on different fabrics, uh, whether the natural, synthetic, um, you know, all these different things, those are the things that we see a trend on. So uh, shameless plug, uh, we have a product that supports two different ink sets, and we did that on purpose. Uh, so our TX300P uh, 1800 Mark II, I know that's a mouthful, that machine allows you to load up a dye sub workflow and it also allows you to load up a different ink set that's not dye sub so like a textile pigment uh, or a reactive dye and the reason we did that is because if you're a designer if you're not a traditional display graphics house or you know just a traditional sign shop uh, a designer that wants to get into uh, creating a new uh, catalog of, of clothing for example they don't want to be locked down to the one ink technology, and most of them don't have enough capital when they're starting out to buy two different printers. So by combining the best of both worlds, 
they can get all their dye sublimation work out. They can also do all the small stuff that they want to do. And they can also choose if they decide that they want to do like a, a cotton fabric or something like that to do like a textile pigment load in the machine. And we've seen that as a very big trend because now you've got the best of both worlds in the textile arena. And that's something that we haven't really had a lot of exposure to over the years. You either chose a printer for dye sub or you chose a printer for any of those other technologies by being able to put them in it's it's opened up a whole new world of, of design for, for for fabric designers and we've seen a lot more um, in the u.s as a result so do you have to completely flush out one ink set before you put the other one in no no you load them in uh parallel oh <laughs> so it has multiple heads or do they share share print heads it, uh, so you can configure the machine with one ink set and take advantage of multiple print heads, but the way it's designed is the machine can literally be split in half through the, uh, the firmware. So if you, uh, you, on our machines, you will always have uh, eight uh, different places to load ink. Four of them would be die sub and four of them would be the other ink. And uh-huh. when, when you're running the software, you just tell it which ink set to act, you know, which, which print head and channels to activate and you're using it. Now, the uh, the benefit to that is you get a lot of different uh, versatility. It does change the architectural speed. So, you know, also take that into consideration. I, I don't want to say that, you know, you're going to not be able to produce your jobs, but definitely want to do your homework before, before you look into it. But the benefit there uh, from the die sub and the traditional side is that, uh, you know, it gives you that best of both worlds. The it other is, thing- It's interesting. Yeah, the other thing it allows you to do, which is something that I, you guys have probably seen, is the trend of direct-to-fabric sublimation printing, like flags right. and stuff like that. Yeah. This machine allows you to load a transfer, uh, so transfer and direct-to-fabric ink are almost chemically compatible, but they're different because there's different washability, there's different things that happen uh, especially when you're doing the pigment load, because when you're doing a direct to fabric, you have to be able to saturate as much as you can so that you get the color on both sides. So this machine will also allow you to load both transfer and direct dye sub ink simultaneously. And it has a platen on it that allows you to put your paper through and hold the paper down. And you can pull that platen out so that you can do your blow through on your, um, on your fabric as well. So if you're a shop that just wants to do dye sub and you want to be able to do transfer paper and direct to fabric, this machine will support that as well. Cool, cool. And what's your favorite color and why? <laughs> That's our last question. What's my favorite, uh, my, my favorite color, this is gonna sound terrible. Uh, my favorite color since I was, as far back as I remember has always been red. So okay. no, no, no correlation to the fact that Mamaki's color is red as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, yeah, okay, I get I'm it. I'm wondering. <laughs> Yeah, it's just that's always been my favorite color. I think uh, red, uh, it, it just has a lot of life in it. I think it's something that's a, it's a, it's a beautiful color. It means a lot of different things. Uh, it's, it's got a, a lot of great potential and it's, I don't know, it's found on all kinds of different stuff from company logos like Mamaki to, you know, sports cars. Uh, and it's, it's just something that's always resonated with me. And now it's your turn to ask us just about anything. Yeah, so I uh, I think that the the biggest question I would have from my end uh, in terms of the I guess really the pandemic, you guys have spent a lot of time supporting customers, building profiles. What's the biggest thing that you all have seen uh, trending since the whole pandemic began? Because I know that you uh, you spent a lot of time with customers, getting them and their workflows kind of dialed in. What are you guys seeing out there? Wow. 
<laughs> well, that's been different through different uh, phases of the pandemic. Um, you know, I think Shelby and I stayed out and a lot of people know this story, so I'll do the condensed version. We stayed out longer than most people. I think it was March 17th or 18th that we left our last client, you know, quote unquote, pre-pandemic, even though we were in the pandemic. Um, and then we really didn't get back on site with any clients till June. Uh, and by the time that happened, uh, I would say I might be wrong, Shelby, but I think a lot of our clients last summer and fall were definitely very focused on floor graphics and signage, uh, which is probably no shock to you. Um, the, the people, I think by the time we got back out, the people who were doing masks and gaiters, like we ended up doing, had already figured that out. Uh, and their color was, you know, quote unquote, good enough. Uh, so, you know, you would think we got into that piece of it, but we didn't because most people were doing that at the same time we were doing it. Um, and then the other the kind of surprising thing is there were a whole lot of like rip upgrades and, um, you know, infrastructure um, enhancement and, and catching up. And we, we kind of took that to mean that people had the downtime and maybe they got their PPP funds or they were just a well-run company that was, you know, had, had appropriate cash reserves. And, and so they, and a lot of that was done remotely. Um, and, and so last year was, last year was challenging. I mean, there was, there was some ups of consulting and then some downs and, and overall it was not great. But from January 1 of this year on, it's been insane. I'm as busy as I've ever been from a consulting point of view. Um, and, and I just think it's, I think it's still kind of that same thing where people are, they've, they've, if they're well run or they've got funding, whatever it might be, they've purchased new equipment. And so they want to dial that new equipment in, or they recognize that they haven't been fully utilizing their equipment for eight, nine, 10, 12 months, and they see the end and they, and they realize that they're going to be ramping back up. You know, we have a, a, a client who's about to greenfield a new plant, which I, I just, I find astounding at this moment in time, but they are. And they've recently had us put color verification and process control software in all three of their plants so that they can dial in color across their entire network and produce work anywhere. And, and they had a candid conversation with me that their sales are currently down a substantial amount. Um, and I'm like, wow, that's, that takes, you know, courage to do that. And they're like, well, no, it doesn't really take courage. It takes, it takes having the capital, you know, resources to do it and, and understanding that this is, this will not last forever um, because if it does last forever, we're not going to be here anyway. So if, it, if it's going to last forever, if it's not going to last forever, then we need to do things to get ready for the end. And, uh, and, and I think, I think the end is in sight. I mean, that, that's, that's my gut feeling. Yeah, well, we've seen the same thing on our end. We've seen a significant uptick in activity uh, in the past six months in, in terms of uh, new businesses. Uh, there are a lot of startups happening. I think people uh, made it through the summer, realized that you know they, their job that was furloughed or maybe they just got laid off. Uh, they weren't going to be able to continue that career and they needed to start something new. And the, with the gig economy thing, you know, the information so easily accessible now, people can go to YouTube and, you know, sp spend a few minutes and become an expert on something. Uh, arguably, they're not the expert, but they spend enough time on YouTube with enough different people that they recognize, hey, I could probably do this as well. And they they put their money out there and 
you know, we've started programs to try and uh, to help those types of customers. Uh, we've got a, an all-inclusive program called Print On Select that allows you to, to get your machine and your ink for, for one price. And we've seen a, a huge uptick in a lot of the, um, the startup. But it's interesting you bring the, the, the well-funded uh, companies. We've also seen them diversifying. And yes. to your point, you know, investing in different things that they thought, yeah, we will do that next year. Well, you know, they kept saying next year, next year, next year. Well, somehow last year became next year for a lot of them. And they, they bought that equipment and decided to try that new venture, even if it didn't really have a customer base yet, which was kind of interesting to see. So yeah, we're seeing a lot of the same thing on our side as well. How about you, Shelby? What'd you see? Well, on the die sub side, um, I, I can take pieces of what you both said and use it as my answer, but and it really was going to be my answer. On the die sub side, um, I think a lot of people were looking for, you know, little side businesses, uh, you know, when they were furloughed or so on and so forth. And, you know, these little crafty hobbyist, you know, die sub businesses, you know, started springing up all over the place. And, you know, you can get a, a decent, you know, little printer and a decent little heat press and, you know, find a vendor for ink and find a vendor for paper and, you know, really throw a few thousand dollars at it and you can start up something, you know. Um, and I think I saw a lot of that going on. I also saw, in my opinion, more online customization going on when it came to yep. Dyson. And I think, you know, you know, let's face it, you know, I, I don't remember the statistics with the story or anything, but they're talking about how internet usage obviously skyrocketed, you know, over the last year. Well, gee, I wonder why. You know, everybody has nothing else to do. So we're all, you know, just combing the web. And, you know, so a lot of people wanted to be able to customize their own Daiso products. Maybe they didn't want to make them themselves, but people were really looking for those web to print solutions. Uh, and then on the organizational side, Yes, the surprising thing to me, well, you know, why were we so busy? Well, all these people who were holding out on, like you said, Michael, buying that new piece of equipment for whatever reason, all of a sudden had the time to buy it, bring it in, learn it, you know, get it up to speed. And then all of a sudden, hey, my team doesn't have a whole lot of production to do. Let's bring in Jim and Shelby and have them train them how to do color management on the machines. And so I'm seeing more, you know, just because I think people had more time, it, it wasn't just Jim and I going into these facilities and doing the work and waving goodbye out the door. And, you know, we got your printer set up, see you later. It was teams of people around us for two, three days asking us questions. And why are you doing it this way? What's your process? Tell us your strategy here, you know? So I, I just felt like people were more interested in learning the process over the last year because maybe they had more time to do so. Maybe they decided to go ahead and, you know, invest in these new pieces of equipment and technology. And that surprised me, but I mean, happily surprised me. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. We, uh, you know, we quickly shifted all of our communication. We went from trade shows and in-person uh, events because you know, buying a wide format printer is a, it's an intimate process. Usually, you know, you want to come in. It's like, it's almost like buying a car. You want to come in, you want to test drive it. You want to make sure it's going to do what it's supposed to do. You know, you don't want to just take the stickers word for it, that it's, it's got all these great features. And we quickly shifted to virtual, but uh, when we started doing all of our, uh, you know, video production and everything else, our viewership on all these different uh, platforms, whether it's YouTube or Facebook or whatever started to skyrocket as well. And 
our customers were hungry for that that information. Like, don't just show us what it can do, show us how you did that. And that's one of the things the applications team on our end has been spending a lot of time is to develop these applications and then walk them through in a very condensed format, walk them through the quick process to get the customer enough information they can go, okay, yeah, I can do that. And, and I agree, I think it's, it's, it's one of the things that's been really beneficial for us because of the internet. We could argue the internet's also created some challenges for us, but it's definitely allowed us to, uh, to do that. And the customers that had uh, idle time on their hands all of a sudden were more interested in the process than they were before. And that, that's been great to see. Indeed. Yep. So, well, la last, last shameless plug on here, and then I'll ask you one more question. Uh, you mentioned the, uh, the startups, the, the web, uh, web to print process. Yes. Uh, Etsy, Spotify, we Shopify, excuse me, not Spotify, Shopify. We see a lot of these, uh, these pop-up websites and um, you know, they're, they're, they're great. But a lot of those people are running that as a second career. Maybe they're running it out of their garage. Uh, accessibility, you mentioned that as well, is very important. So uh, one of the things that we pride ourselves on is having accessibility for customers, no matter where you are in your journey. Uh, so for those customers that are just looking to get into dye sublimation and want to start that new uh, IT product uh, and, and get that website, the website's easy to put up now with the, the whole web in a box thing that you can go online and just design a website couple of clicks of the mouse. Uh, but that monthly payment, if you will, sometimes can be a little bit uh, daunting. So looking at a product uh, that is going to do everything you want it to do and not break the bank, definitely check out the uh, the TS100, uh, 1600 that we just announced a few months ago. Uh, it's one of the lowest point entry products, a couple hundred dollars a month. Uh, you would have a, a dye sublimation uh, product running, and it's going to be something that uh, I think would help a lot of those customers that you mentioned earlier. So to that point, I know you guys spend a lot of time working with customers and coaching them and all that. So my, my last question for you, what's the hardest color that you always have to fight with when you're doing a uh, color management workflow? I'm going to leave this one. Yeah, it depends on the on the print process. But if, if we're talking about dye sublimation, it's 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 um, it's typically anything down in in the uh, green and purple range because your cyan ink is so much. Um, it's not weaker. I don't like that word. It's got a different. Um, it's got a different hue than your traditional printing inks do, and even most of your like solvent and UV inks. So you get down in those those greens and those blues and it can be tough to hit the exact color people want. And then of course, the one that everybody struggles with in every freaking platform is is red. I mean, but, that, <laughs> but but red is typically red is typically a a a function of building the profile, let's just say less than perfect because every printer should be able to at least achieve some degree of of, of a nice rich red. And so that to me usually just means they're using a canned profile on a substrate it wasn't designed for and, and things like that. But I mean, it's, it's, it's just spot colors in general, Michael. I mean, I, I could, I, I could tell you every single color under the sun that I've, I've struggled with at one point or another with a client and, it, and, and quite often it comes down to either a bad base profile, output profile, um, and or just not understanding how name spot colors work and the fact that you can create custom recipes. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I could talk an hour on that topic alone. 
Sure. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, the reason I asked that is because, you know, with a, uh, with a dye sublimation workflow, I mean, obviously you're, you're not using the, the white point of the paper to, to determine your color and the color is not finished yet until it's transferred. So, uh, that transferability, the heat settings, all these different variables. So uh, red definitely was not a surprise to me. Blue was a little bit more of a surprise, uh, but then I guess it's a, it's a little less of a surprise for me because we have, we don't have a traditional cyan in our dice up. We have blue ink, which right. is a little bit more range. So uh, we don't get as much of that, but yeah, definitely red. We hear a lot of red people chasing red colors, uh, trying to hit specific spot colors and red. It's always one of the ones that we hear. Yep. All right. So last chance for a shameless plug, where can people find either Michael Maxwell or Momaki or both online? Well, definitely uh, check out all of our resources. Uh, you can start easiest place to start is MamakiUSA.com. So M-I-M-A-K-I-U-S-A.com. Uh, we have a resources page that'll link you back to everything. If you don't want to go to the webpage, you're just a you know a mobile person and you just want to you know work off your cell phone, you certainly can get to the internet from your cell phone. Uh, but you can also connect with us on uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. And if you want to see my mug on some videos, uh, you can go to YouTube and check out our uh, wide variety of different uh, things there. And mine are a little bit more uh, product centric, but we definitely have some amazing applications, videos and how to's tips, tricks, techniques, and more. Definitely check those out on YouTube. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your your wealth of knowledge about dye sublimation and, and the Maki line. I think that that helps people who are are looking to either get into or grow this 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 dye sublimation business they might have. So, yeah, just don't be afraid. Uh, you know, definitely, uh, if you know, we, we hope that you would like our product and that you want to buy it, but don't be afraid to try something. You can't be. Uh, adverse to the the idea that the technology I mean, technology whether it's ours or others uh, it's it's just so much more consistent nowadays than it, it's ever been uh, it really comes down to what what the manufacturer is putting under the hood that's going to help you you know be productive uh, in in whatever your application is going to be so definitely try it out i think that we would likely have a solution for you on the mamaki side but uh, for those uh, customers that are listening uh, definitely uh, use resources like Jim and Shelby here to, to give you some guidance. Cause it's, it's not that bad. Uh, if you want to start from scratch, it's, it's actually a lot easier than it's ever been. All right. Thanks again. And have a great day. Thanks. Bye-bye.